Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, last episode, I mentioned that the podcast had a new name, and that name was Introflecting Life with Michael Palmieri. Um, and I was curious how long that name was going to last for. Well, I have an answer. The, um, the podcast lasted for one episode because I'm already moving on to a, a, a new name, uh, one that I think actually better fits the theme and the purpose of the podcast. So the new name uh, is called Perspective with Michael Palmieri. Um, I, I think it fits a lot better um, because each episode really does center around perspective. How does each guest see the world? Why do they see it in that way? Um, when that perspective got solidified and, um, how does it react, um, when it's challenged or presented with a, with a counter perspective, does it get fortified or does it evolve? Um, and I, I think the, the, these questions are very interesting. Um, and that's, that's what I'm doing the podcast for. So, um, so I think I'll stick with this name for a lot longer than the other names I've given it. Uh, and, um, I think it fits cool. So, um, now that that's been, um, solidified, let's move on to the guest and the actual substance of the podcast. Uh, today we have Grace Galloway on to share her perspective on some of the questions that I had at the end of last podcast. Um, those questions are mainly around art. Um, what is it? What's the purpose of art? How should art be interpreted? Is it an objective or a subjective thing? Um, how can it be used to understand the inner self? And uh, lastly, or the most important one, is how did art influence Grace's perspective on life? Uh, so without further ado, let's get it. Because we know each other, I, I have a good idea that uh, art has played a, a big part of your life and a big part in your life. So I'm curious if you could tell me the if there were any major milestones or epiphanies or just um, big moments that you had because of any art that you interacted with your life or art you created yourself. Sure. Yeah. Art has always been a big part of my life, which I think kind of stemmed from my parents. My mom was an art teacher her whole life. And my dad is not an artist, but well, I think he's an artist, even though he probably wouldn't call himself one. Um, but they've always sort of encouraged me to be really observant and just look at things with an artistic view and see the beauty in the world. Um, I always like to tell this weird story to Jeff about how as a kid, like my favorite game was to go outside and collect berries and smash them up and pretend I was a Native American and like make cave paintings on rocks in my yard. So it was always kind of like, like making things and doing things with my hands and sort of creating has always been um, in my blood and something that I always do. Um, and I think in terms of uh, art that's made an impact on my life. I was thinking about this and it really sort of comes back to seeing pieces of art in person that I had learned about in the past in school. Um, and finally kind of seeing those in real life is always really, really impactful for me. 
Um, so the per- the first example I can think of is um, in high school, I went to Paris with my family and we went to the Musée de l'Orangerie, which is the Monet Museum. And they have just these whole rooms that are oval shaped full of these huge Monet paintings. And it's absolutely breathtaking. And I feel like I had always loved Monet and my mom uh, would always do this project with her students with uh, tissue paper. And it was like my favorite project ever. And I did it with her every year, even when I was too old to be doing that project, we would do it together. Um, So sort of like after all these years of looking at an image in a book or on the computer, when you see it in real life, it's kind of takes on a whole, a whole new life. Um, so that was sort of the first thing. And then um, in college, I studied abroad in Venice and I had taken a lot of art history classes in high school and in college before that. So Venice, you know, is like the Mecca for, for art. There's many well-known artists, Michelangelo, Titian, Tintoretto, who lived in Venice and worked in Venice. And when you're there, you can see all of their work that I had only seen in a textbook before. And just the scale of it in real life is so, so crazy and so different. Um, I actually cried when I saw the statue of the David in Florence (laughs) because it was so big and so detailed and you just can't get that when you're looking at it in a book. So all of my classmates who I hardly even knew at the time because we had just met each other in Venice. We're like, who is this girl? I can't (laughs) believe she's crying. (laughs) But I don't know. It was just really, it just struck me like how huge this sculpture was that was created so many years ago when we didn't have any technology and these people were just sculpting things out of a chisel and a piece of stone. So it it really is kind of, kind of crazy to see. Hmm. Can we, um, can we spend a little time on why seeing the, the statue of David was so sent you to tears? <laughs> um, I'm guessing there were tears of joy, right? Um, or, or were they tears yeah. of sublimation? Like you're just seeing something so wonderful and so uh, breathtaking that it uh, you just weren't expecting it to be that magnitude of impressment, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I'm generally an emotional person so I guess it's not that strange that I was crying but I guess it's a little weird that I was crying at a statue but I think just like thinking about the person who made those pieces and what they were doing in the time period they were living in is just so interesting to me to think about like what they were going through when they made this and that particular statue is larger than life size it is really big and I think I just wasn't expecting that because I usually see it you know maybe three inches tall in a book or something you don't really understand what this thing is until you see it in real life Um, and I think just when you see something in real life up close you can see like the marks of the artists themselves like in those Monet paintings, like you look up close and you can see every little brush stroke and every little mark that they made, which is 
really fascinating. And in the statue, you can see like all the little details, like the fingernails and the toenails that that Michelangelo sculpted on there. So you can really kind of get a sense for the the artist's hand, which I think is you you just don't get that if you're looking at a picture of it. Mm-hmm. So for you, art an art piece isn't just the product um the mm-hmm. the person the time period the history that goes along with it um uh, makes it um i guess what 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 about the history how does that add to it what what does that do to the piece of work yeah i think i think that's a big part of it and i think back to learning about history throughout the years and I used to hate history class like I would always tell people that was the the only class pretty much that I did not like and did not do very well in because I just didn't really care about I don't know learning about what year (laughs) the black plague occurred in or whatever like it just didn't interest me and then when I started taking an art history class in high school, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. It was like, okay, now I feel like what all these historical things like are connected to a person and they're given sort of an emotion and it just kind of made it more real in my head. Um, If you see a work of art that someone made and it can tell you about what was going on in their life or what was going on in the country or the time period that they lived in, it's so much more personal and, in my opinion, interesting than, you know, memorizing various battles or whatever, Mm -hmm. dates of different wars. And I think, you know, the same thing kind of comes across in if you read a memoir versus a textbook, but it's just really kind of putting a personal touch on these stories, which in my mind just makes them so much more special. Mm -hmm. It's like a piece of art allows you to jump into the time period uh, of which it was created and allows you to understand the artist who made it. Uh, you right, can like see the emotions it. or the yeah. feelings or the thoughts of them uh, in that in that art piece. Yeah, you're like seeing it from the perspective of a person versus just reading the facts in a book. It, rather than just regurgitating them for a test or something. Yeah, and it's hmm. not it's not an objective regurgitation of facts in a book it's like a subjective personal view of a person in time and what they were going through maybe you can help me in this regard i've always been curious about how a certain piece of work can embody an emotion like if if you draw me a picture of a face of somebody crying i'm gonna say oh obviously (laughs) that's sadness right there um but but i've seen pictures uh, where people can understand the emotion given to it just from the colors or just from the lines. Is there like a certain language that everyone is using that like they're uh, allowing these ideas to be expressed with that like the general public don't know about? Um, I don't know. I don't think so because I think that art is subjective and I think that everyone who's looking at a piece of art comes with their own history and their own perspective and their own 
kind of narrative. So I think everyone can kind of interpret a piece of art in their own way, which is also why I think it's so interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of theory behind, like you, you said, color and lines. Like people can look at a color and have a totally different reaction based on their experiences or even based on the context in which they're viewing the piece. Like, is it in a dark cave <laughs> in a museum or is it in a bright modern gallery? Or are you looking at something in your best friend's house? Like, I think that sort of the context in which you look at a piece gives you an understanding. And, and I think over time, like if, you know, you're, looking at something maybe that you have in your house that you pass every day, I think over time your understanding of peace and your perspective on it can change too. It's not like, you know, you have the same feeling or understanding of a piece of art mm -hmm. throughout your whole life. Yeah, th that makes sense. But I, I think in, in your answer, you're implying there's no right way to interpret art. There's no, there's no right answer for what an artist was trying to do but is is that always the case like is there ever a time where somebody wants to say i want to display the emotion anger and someone interprets it as happiness and you're like no that wasn't what i was going for <laughs> I, I, I think that conflicts is there a case like some artists are just creating art and don't have an intention or don't have yeah, a goal in mind, but there are some art pieces that are more free from and like abstract. Is is there a, a like a spectrum on that? What's your take on that? I think there's a spectrum, and I think, um, like myself having been an artist my whole life, there's definitely been times where I've made something and someone has a reaction to it that's really different from what I thought it would be, and that's. I think could be frustrating to some people, but it's also like really interesting because I don't know. I think there's just so much, like everyone has a different brain and sees things so differently that there's, I just don't think it's really possible to make something and assume that every person in the world is going to see it the same way. I mean, maybe if it's like a big smiley face, I guess. <laughs> No one's going to think that is a sad piece, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think, I just think it's so, so personal to the viewer, um, but there's definitely a spectrum. I mean, probably if you made something super abstract, a lot of people are going to have a million different responses to it. Mm -hmm. Is there a common language that is developed through culture that allows people to understand art on even though everyone has a different brain people come from the same direction when looking at it um i'm thinking about like the word blue when when you say mm -hmm. somebody's blue today uh you're usually saying they're they're sad or depressed and so yeah. now now my brain has been like primed with this idea that blue and sadness go together mm -hmm. um so now if you get like a bunch of people that speak english together that are looking at this this piece of art and, and we're all like primed to this idea of blue 
Um, mm-hmm. No, I think I understand. <laughs> I think yeah. where you're going, but I mean, we all I are totally influenced by the culture in which we're brought up and our families and our friends and just society, the society that we live in and what we see on TV. I mean, we're so constantly telling or being told what's, what's right, what's wrong, what's this, what's that, what's, what sad should look, what happy is, what, you know, what's a good painting, what's not good. So I think for sure we're all influenced by just how we're, we're brought up. And I think culturally that's definitely different in different parts of the world or, you know, depending on your age um, or even what part of this country you grew up in or what your family's like. Um, it's funny when you mentioned blue, I like used to have this theory when I was younger that like, that no one saw the same colors and we only knew blue was blue because we were told that that was blue Mm -hmm. how do i know that my blue is the same as your blue Mm -hmm. i don't think we'll ever know there's no way of knowing but i was like obsessed (laughs) with this thought for a while it's a like i'm looking at your blue shirt and i'm like what if what you see is really purple but you're just calling it blue Mm -hmm. i think there's there's a pretty good um thought experiment that was done by a, a neuroscientist um, who came up with this hypothetical of there is a, a neuroscientist who's in this black and white house. Everything is black mm-hmm. and white. There's no other colors. But she knows the brain so well and understands it so well that she she and the brain and physics and she understands, she understands how light works, how different wavelengths are translated differently to our cones and and mm-hmm. rods in our eyes. She she knows it down to the molecular detail. But when you actually show her um, a, a like a red toy, her mind has never experienced it, has no idea what it's going to be, even though she knows what's happening biologically in it. And she can't mm. say like what color it's going to be, even though it, the, the they say it's going to be red. You, you know that that wavelength is red, but how it's perceived in your mind there's there there's nothing there we, we don't know uh what the internal perception the first person view of this color actually is we just have this agreed upon language of this wavelength here that you're seeing that's red oh yeah i see that wavelength too that's red oh nice we agree but what do you actually right. see what is what is your red and right. so and how do you ever know i don't <laughs> think you can i don't, I don't think, think it's possible we ever will. mm-hmm I mean, uh, I'm sure people do see things a little bit differently, mm-hmm. right? Or oh, some, yeah. Some people, at least, mm-hmm. they must be. I don't know. I used to think about that. Like, do some people not really see, you know, they're not colorblind, but maybe they don't really fully see color in its full extent, and maybe that makes them less creative or less artistic or mm-hmm. just, I don't know. So yeah. I kind of thought that, that like maybe I see things in a little bit of a different way, but maybe mm-hmm. I'm just <laughs> probably I don't. But <laughs> no, it's possible. I think know. um, I think I looked up one time that um, there there is a higher percentage in women uh, that have four working um, cones, 
than mm. in men. And I have you heard ha- that too. And if you have more cones in your eyes, then you can see color with a greater um, resolution. Mm-hmm. And you can distinguish the different shades and the different hues. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a biological reason. Like, obviously, somebody missing a cone, they can't tell the difference between red and green yeah. if they're colorblind in that that aspect. So, yeah, there's definitely a biological differences. And then um, I think there, there are uh, language, there's cultural differences where mm-hmm. if you have someone doing a, a color pattern recognition problem, uh, from an English-speaking background, and then you have someone doing it with a Russian-speaking background, you're going to notice that the person who speaks Russian has a better granularity with blues because they mm. have they have multiple words for blue in like the same way we have multiple words for, for red and pink. What we would just call light blue oh, or dark blue or medium blue, they actually they have words for it that are like common uh, language. Oh. And so like this categorization sets their brain up it organizes it in a way where they can just have a, have a hard cutoff that says okay this is no longer blue this is uh our different word for blue for us we're like oh, ah, it's light blue it's dark blue it's kind of like this the spectrum wave but they have a hard yeah cutoff. it's like pink and red kind of interesting i did not know that and i've never thought about that mm-hmm. yeah because a lot of times we just don't have a word for something, or you just don't know the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I did a few courses in color theory. It's really interesting because you have to train your eye to be able to see those things. Like, I think a lot of that comes naturally to some people. I think it also can be taught, like, how to distinguish different tones and like how to know how different colors are going to interact with each other before seeing it in person. Hmm. And I mean, I've always found that so interesting that, you know, if you put a light blue next to a dark blue, it can look like a complete color than if you have that same light blue next to red or something. I mean, it kind of goes back to context, like we were saying before and everything depending on how you're seeing it can can look so different even though it's really the same color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, a funny opportunity to talk about the dress. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. It was you, totally blue and black. <laughs> you're <laughs> there's only one right answer right. after this final, entire conversation. That's my final answer. I know that I'm right. hundred <laughs> percent. It was no, not but- white and gold we're or wait just so talking about white and gold it was blue and black how people can now perceive things differently based on their experience <laughs> and what they're used to looking at well with my trained eye i can tell you it was blue and black <laughs> so for that art piece there is a right answer i don't think that was an art piece i would call that like a someone just posted something on social media an old iPhone picture <laughs> with bad lighting and it turned into an internet sensation. Yeah, so this is a, this is a good opportunity but, to Yeah, that is a good example. <laughs> shift shift the question to um what is art? If if that dress is not a piece of art, what is a piece of art? You know, I have to stand by my comment that that's not a piece of art even though I feel like I have a pretty 
broad definition of what art is. But um, I think I think art is anything that someone is purposefully making either to to make a statement or to elicit a response or an emotion out of someone I don't think it has to be you know traditional painting or sculpture or book or piece of music I think I don't know it can be someone putting two rocks together on the sidewalk because they like how the shapes look together or I don't know anything I don't know anything that kind of you're purposefully creating that would elicit some sort of emotion out of someone or yourself or yourself so I I was going to ask is it a is it a social act where one person is purposely doing it to interact with another person but but you just made the comment that it's yourself too right I think it can be both, and I think a lot of people maybe turn to art um, and they make art that they know they're never going to show anyone else, but they do it for themselves, and it's maybe a way of healing or stress relief or, I don't know, just or something to pass the time, but I think a lot of art just stays private and is never seen by anyone else. So personal art um, has to be purposely created. Is mm-hmm. is that what the... I guess, well, now that you can say you do that... A, can you guess, do an accidentally make art? It can, it can be art. an accidental. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so yeah, like... Totally. Um, I, I've, I've heard this example of um, there used to be this cat statue at this like this university, and um, okay. they, they um they put this chain around the neck of the cat because they were gonna tear the statue down, but they ran out of funds to complete their reconstruction or something. So now oh, the God. art piece just had this chain around <laughs> its neck, chain. and like the question is, is this now an art piece? Because now people are looking at it as like the chain cat, and. Oh geez, it took on a whole new meaning. Yeah, it took on a whole new meaning just because of this accidental um, happenstance. So, are are these um, accidental occurrences like if a cat? I'm a, I don't know why I'm on cats, but if a cat works across a, an art piece <laughs> and like knocks over um, a paintbrush, and then it's like, yeah. okay, that's exactly what I needed. Thank you, cat. <laughs> this little happy little accident for um uh that bob bob ross or something yeah oh my gosh um yeah i think that's art and i think sometimes you could be doing something that you're not consciously thinking you're making art and then i don't know you drop a little paint on the ground or you spill something or you step on a leaf and then you it cracks into a bunch of pieces and all of a sudden you look down and you see that you've made something interesting out of it Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think art art doesn't have to be purposeful. I take back my previous statement. <laughs> okay, so we take back purposeful now. Or well, what are we left with? Yeah, <laughs> Is it's everything um, art. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the. I don't know. It's so hard to define, right? I think it's always interesting to see um, what different people's definitions of certain things are, and something as abstract as art coming from uh, coming from you t- says a lot. Um, someone who, who like works with it and, and interacts with it. Um, yeah. So let's let's leave the definition for a second and um, focus on the the purpose. The which I think you you spoke to a little bit. You, the purpose is to elicit a response from somebody or yourself. Mm-hmm. What types of responses are people looking for? And is it, do you have to have like, have that in mind when you're making the art, when you start to create it? Or do you create the art and then see what response it gives to you? I, I think, um, yeah, let's start with the first one because I think that the exploratory phase, uh, I want to go into that direction next. But the first one, what's okay. the, what's the, the the purpose of listening a response why do people do that um so i think it can be a lot of reasons and i think that people make art in a lot of ways for a lot of different reasons it could be political because they're trying to make a statement about something or it could be a cry for help if they're going they're struggling with something or it could be they're trying to add beauty into the world and try to, you know, make people appreciate something that's just beautiful and makes them feel good and feel happy. Um, I think art can elicit any sort of emotion. So I would say, I don't know, it depends on the person who's making it. <laughs> it's pretty broad. It's, it's, um, it's a lot of things. It, art is a is a powerful a tool, things. right? Yeah. It's a, if it's a it's a skill you have, you become very powerful in your ability to voice your opinions or ideas or what you think is important to do at that specific moment. Hmm. Yeah, I think art's really powerful, and it's times can deliver a more powerful message than a piece of writing or by saying something. I think if you are looking at an image or if you're, you know, experiencing a space or even like hearing a symphony or something, it can be, you know, really powerful and deliver a really strong message. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people maybe just think of art as a decorative thing, but they're not thinking of it as as a way to to spread messages and to you know do something powerful or create change or you know make people feel certain things. What about art when it's used in advertising? How do you feel about that? 
So I used to work in advertising for a while after college, which I then left (laughs) because I was just sort of not feeling fulfilled in that. Um, I think art and advertising is, um, it's manipulative in a lot of ways, but it's also really interesting because you're thinking about the psychology of the person who's who's looking at your ad or um, interacting with it. So you're trying to figure out, well, what are they doing in that exact moment that they're seeing that ad? Um, Who are these people? What are they like? What are they not like? What's important to them? Uh, Where do they live? You know, traits about them, you're kind of trying to analyze and then think, well, what could I say to them to make them do what I want them to do or buy what I want them to buy? Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting because it's a lot of analysis and it's, it's, you know, it's not just making a picture because you want to make something. It's really, you know, making something for a very specific person to see it at a very specific time in order to make them do something specific. So usually buy something. (laughs) usually buy something so and what I was doing was all digital advertising and I was like okay I'm done you know making these little images online just to make people click this and buy it it was like sort of I don't know didn't feel (laughs) very good but um I mean it's so interesting thinking about marketing and advertising and like they say you know people have such different responses to ads based on what they're doing at that time. Or, you know, they say like, for example, TV commercials, like if you're watching a TV show, that's your favorite show in the world. And then you see a commercial for, I don't know, Clorox, like you're more likely to be like, Ooh, Clorox, I need to get that (laughs) clean my house. I can't wait to clean my house. Versus if you're watching some depressing news channel and then the Clorox commercial comes on and you're like, oh, God, just I need like more cleaning reminders I've in my house. So it's really trying to think about like what's the mindset that these people are in when they're seeing your ad and how can you kind of capitalize on that? Mm -hmm. I'm going to quickly jump back to our, our statement earlier okay. where we got sidetracked where no 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 this um we're gonna stay on this for a second um but you, you said art is subjective where there's no one right way to interpret it everyone interprets it interprets it differently but now in the advertising world in the marketing world you're trying to create a campaign where you know that somebody is going to react a certain way to it you're trying to target that specific person by using a specific set of tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do those two ideas uh, fit in the same uh, universe? Um, I don't know. There's a part of me that wants to say, oh, well, an ad like that isn't really art, but it really is because you're, I think it's still being creative and you're trying to send a message out there. 
but I think if you're working, if you're making an ad for a company, you're creating a message for that brand or that company. It's not your message, but if you're an artist making art for yourself or for a cause that you believe in, you're spreading your own message. So that's maybe kind of a distinction. Um, you know, if you're an art director, like making a print ad, you know, you're you're just making something to sell a certain thing and not really me saying what you personally want to say about that thing. But maybe that person in their free time does their own art and they're, they're telling a different story when it's their own nudge they're in control of. I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, I'm trying to piece it together. So if a company tells you to do something as an employee, you create a piece of art based on what their message is, which is not necessarily your message. But I, I think I'm trying to reconcile the idea of you putting, you making a piece of art with the message in it, but then people are interpreting it in their own subjective way. And so there has to be some common way or less like some, what, what is the base message that people are going to get out of this? What is the most common thing? What is the, um, uh, you, you make the message pretty obvious, I'm guessing in certain ways. And there's a, there's like, I don't know, maybe in art there is the 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 purpose that the artist is creating it is like the layer the first layer. I'm making it for this mm -hmm. purpose. Um it can be interpreted as that way. If you get it, that's great. But if you interpret it as other things, then that's also what makes something art, maybe. It's it's open to be dissected in any kind of way if you don't get the main purpose. But for like yeah. advertising you say, all right, I'm going to put this thing together. Um, we're going to have Clorox as the main thing. If people interpret this as Clorox is like not a good product, then they interpreted the message wrong. <laughs> and it's, and this, this is not art right now in the means to be interpreted, but it's artistically created to get the point across. It's a creative medium to show people, to get people to buy something or, or to fulfill, fulfill the main purpose. I think that's probably the, yeah. the good part of it. Yeah. There's there's like different, there's a different tolerance as to how open to interpretation different pieces of art is. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess, I guess that, that, that sits with me. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's, there's different like elements of design that you could use in a piece of art that would make people interpret it a certain way, like color and which, you know, we all know people mm. have their societal kind of things in their head of what each color means or scale. Like if you make a really, really large thing that surrounds you in a room and it's black and red and big 
sharp looking shapes and you know that's gonna give a different vibe than if your piece of art is a little tiny I don't know blue and green thing like scale and color and shape and pattern and materials are all kind of you know things in an artist's toolbox that you might learn in school or experiment with that that people have a certain tend to have a certain reaction to so you can kind of use those to to bring across the message that you're trying to convey Mm -hmm. are are the greatest artists the ones that can use those toolkits the most effectively to get their message to the greatest amount of people? Um, not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. Some people might say yes. <laughs> the greatest artist of all time. I don't know. I think uh, there's probably a lot of really great artists out there who hardly anyone's seen their message or their art I don't know if that makes them less great or just maybe how would you define a, a great a artist if it's not about their exp- I don't exposure know. <laughs> or <rigid? laughs> uh, I think I mean I I am drawn to art that makes me feel a certain way um for me personally usually i am gravitated towards art that makes me feel good and happy and content and you know it's like looking at beautiful art can make me relaxed and it's a way to relieve stress for me um but i think that's not everyone's definition of what makes art good um but i don't know i mean i think there's obviously artists are better or more great than others but i don't know again it's kind of up to the perspective of who's looking at the art but if you're talking about in history, I mean, a lot of the great artists or famous artists kind of, you know, used new techniques that weren't done before in the past or kind of, you know, used new materials that weren't available before in a new way or, you know, other methods or something like that. Um which I think makes them great because they're being innovative and doing different things. Mm-hmm. So probably that's why a lot of those people are written written about in the art history textbook because they were doing something different than their predecessors. Hmm. 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 Oh. What do you think makes a great artist, Mike? Now I feel like we need to ask everyone this question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a super subjective thing about what is what is greatness. What what is it? Yeah. 
<laughs> how do you define that? That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I I think for me personally, it's um combining the the interests and topics that I'm really curious about and being able to communicate them in a novel or unique way. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think about um, MC Escher as one of those artists who just really blows me away where he's able to combine these mathematical paradoxes and put them into a, a painting or a drawing um, that like makes you question reality and and what the laws of physics are and um okay so if i i get i guess if i if i were to put it down it's use it's making me think critically about something that i'm really already interested in and seeing it from Mm. a new perspective i think that's what a great artist does a great artist is someone who allows me to continue in my search of understanding by presenting the information in a new way. I think that's final answer, I think. That's a good way to put it. Or as an artist, even better if they can get you interested in something that you were previously totally uninterested in. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we may need to have a episode too. <laughs> After I've had some time to process what makes a great artist. Mhm. Yeah. Um let let's jump back to uh when we we're talking about uh the purpose of art saying we can communicate with others but you can also use it to express certain things of yourself as a, a way of healing, a way of mm-hmm. understanding yourself. Can you talk more about that aspect of artistic expression? Sure. I think for me personally, and a, and a lot of people probably also, um, there's something comforting in knowing that maybe you're making something privately and it's could be easier to put it down on a piece of paper with color or shape um, versus talking about those feelings or writing them down. I think sometimes um, it's hard to put into words maybe what people are thinking or going through and using art can kind of help you analyze those feelings um i think like even down to the materials you use like i think um i have a friend who's an art therapist and i talked to her a lot about her work and she you know was has been telling me about how a lot of people who feel like they're out of control or they need they want more control in their lives you know, gravitate towards using a pen or a pencil or something hard or whereas, you know, if you might feel like you're kind of your life is too rigid and you're not able to express yourself enough, it can kind of help you to pick up 
a watercolor set and just do something that's totally uncontrollable and you're just sort of giving into the medium itself. And I think those kind of things are really powerful and kind of experimenting with different materials and I don't know, or even just scribbling with a big crayon to get out some anger <laughs> can, can go a long way. And I think, um, I think for people who don't see themselves as artists, then doing something like that feels really uncomfortable or, you know, seems like maybe it would be even more stressful than healing. But um, I think if you're open to it, then it's kind of using art as a way to decompress and analyze what you're feeling can be really effective. How did, how does, how does art therapy work for somebody who knows what each tool says about how they're feeling? How, how, how do you go about it? If like you, you, you come to the canvas and you're like, okay, um, I'm feeling some way. I don't know how to express it in words. Let me just see what happens. Like you have to disconnect yourself from your, your thoughts in a way and just see where your hand goes kind of and see which which tool am I grabbing for? Am I am I going towards the pen today or am I going towards the <laughs> the, the paintbrush? Um, it's like how do you how do you do that dissociation um, being familiar with it or is it better just to not know it at all? It's probably better to not know it at all and just see what happened and see if anything makes you feel better or feel a certain way. I don't know. Usually if I'm stressed and I'm just kind of sketching in a sketchbook, I don't even really know what I'm going to do or make. I just kind of start with a line and see where it goes. And I don't know. Sometimes I just make something totally random that I would have never thought of. I just kind of let it come out subconsciously and see what happens. Oh, that's interesting. Can you... But, but I think that, I think that's a scary thought for a lot of people. And like, uh, like sometimes with Jeff, who you had on the podcast previously, my fiance, he would not call himself an artist. Like I'll say, you know, Oh, like we had a really stressful week. Like, why don't we just draw for a little bit? And he'll be like, Oh my God, I don't really want to do that. That sounds really, really stressful. I don't know what to draw. I don't know what material to pick. I don't even have any paper. I don't, I don't know what to make. I don't want it to look bad. But sometimes I can just get him to do it and just like not worry about what it looks like and not worry about ever having to show it to anyone. It doesn't have to be seen. It can just be your own private thing. And I think a lot of times kind of once you get over that initial fear of doing something that's a little different or uncomfortable, in the end, a lot of times he's like, oh, wow, that was that was really fun or I feel better or, you know, I made this really weird thing, but <laughs> it was kind of fun and it took my mind off of work or it took my mind off of other stressful things for a few mm -hmm. minutes and that was helpful. Yeah, just jumping in is is yeah. getting over that first hump is the first step, and then you can get the value out of it. Can yeah, 
and see how good it it's, is. Um, it's hard getting over that hump. And I think like for me, I go through phases where I like don't make any art for a really long time. And then the first time that you pick up a pencil, it's like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I forget how to do this. I'm out of practice. And then kind of once you get in your head like, oh, I'm not going to like what I make. It's really hard to then force yourself to just do it and to keep at it and to keep practicing mm-hmm. or keep working on it. So I find for me, it's like a constant struggle to, to get over that hump. Yeah. And then I'll like be in a few months where I'm like making a lot of stuff and then I get busy and then I stop for a few months and then it's like really hard to get back going again. So mm-hmm. I think it's so admirable when there's people out there that like do a drawing a day or <laughs> I mean, anything a day, every day. Mm. I'm like, wow, that really takes a lot of dedication. But once you're in that zone, it's probably, probably really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've been thinking of, I don't know, trying to force myself to get to that place, but it's hard. Yeah, that's interesting, huh? Um. I, I feel like it's the same way with like journaling or mm-hmm. um, doing any of those those acts that yeah allow you to express your ideas, your feelings, your thoughts, emotions, and just putting it on paper and then um, looking at it and evaluating it. Uh, it takes a lot yeah. of energy. It, it takes it certainly takes yeah. a lot, but um, there's so much value in doing it. There, there's so much you yeah. can get out of it. Um, Totally. I think journaling, that's another thing where like, it's pretty scary to like, think of having those words on a piece of paper, like kind of makes those thoughts real. It's like, now there's a physical thing that it's not just in my head anymore. And mm-hmm. same with making art, you know, like there's, there's kind of proof of whatever's going on up, up in your head. Yeah, which that's true. can be overwhelming. And, or, and for some you know, people, scary. it's like, you, you don't want to have that proof that those thoughts ever existed. You don't want yeah. to portray this image of what's going on in your head um, as if it's the real you. There's a facade that, mm-hmm. that's being placed up. There's walls. There's here is who I I want to be. Here is what's going on in yeah. my head that conflicts with that who I want to be. And um, I, I'm like realizing now that, that putting that stuff down on paper or, or drawing it out allows you to get closer to who you want to be instead of mm-hmm. just ignoring it. Because once you yeah. put it down, uh, this was something that Alex said in his podcast. I don't know what I think until I see what I say. I really like that quote because oh. you, you write it down and once you see it, now you can evaluate it and then it becomes easier to recognize those thoughts or those ideas mm-hmm. that are that's coming up. And then you have the skills now to start changing it. Um, so I, I, I think that's, it's, it's quite interesting that you can do that with like doodling or with art therapy. Um, yeah. I, I'm really curious, like with me, I'm just, I'm just scribbling and I have no idea what's going to come out of it until I look at it after, but I'm curious if like yeah. someone who has experienced drawing, do you start making lines and then you make another line and you're like, oh, okay. That looks like, a, like an umbrella. Let me finish the umbrella. And then, yeah, that could happen. Do, do you just completely turn your mind off while you're drawing? 
Yeah, then, normally I would have my mind off. I wouldn't really do something about it. Well, if I was trying to draw something in particular, then I would be thinking about that thing. Hmm. Usually, a lot of times, then it would be something I'm looking at. Or if I'm just like doodling out of my head, then I wouldn't really be thinking consciously about it. I would just draw some little shapes. Yeah, I think though, I think I do, um, if I'm trying to make art as a form of relaxation or stress relief, which I have had a stressful week actually, I do kind of gravitate towards familiar things or comfortable things that feel comfortable versus drawing something that maybe is a stressful drawing. <laughs> You're just drawing something easy is sometimes um, it's like satisfying because I, I know how to draw a house. Mm -hmm. We all know how to draw a house. So if you are kind of feeling like a lot's going on or having a stressful week, just draw a house or draw a box or something or a rainbow. Or I don't know, something or draw what you see. A lot of times I just, if I'm just drawing what I'm seeing, it's like you you can kind of take your mind off of all the other things and just, just look at the object that you're drawing and just think about the shapes and the lines and not really think about anything else. Hmm. Yeah. Two, two parts here. Um, first one as as someone who's trained and skilled in the arts um and also probably in introspection like do you think you have you have a good sense of how you're feeling what your emotions are um as you move through your day um i think i have a really good sense of what the emotions are i think i'm pretty in tune with my emotions I I don't think I always have a good way of managing or controlling them when they're negative emotions I don't think I have I don't think I am very good at managing stress or anxiety or nervousness like I'm very aware of when I am feeling those feelings but Maybe it makes it even worse that I'm so aware. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's things that I, I know tend to help with stress or anxiety, but I have trouble getting myself to do them sometimes. Like, even just, I know that if I just sit and draw for an hour and, turn my phone off and just don't think about anything it would make me feel better but taking the leap to pull out the pen and the piece of paper is sometimes mm -hmm. hard that initial energy it's always tough yeah. to get over it needs some type of catalyst or right. decrease the amount of energy needed to start yeah hmm. so Okay, when you do when you do sit down and start drawing, um, because you are so in tune with your emotions, you know when you're stressed out or you know when you're anxious. Um, you use art as a way to bring you closer to the the calmness or towards happiness or towards content. Um, 
because you have that toolkit and you know how to use it, right? Yeah, typically that's what I I would do. I would try to use it to go towards calm. I mm-hmm. I'm not usually scribbling a big black hole with a black marker, a <laughs> black hole of anger. Usually so, it's like something. Um, you don't positive. use it as a um as an exploratory tool. You don't use it to find out the way that you're feeling about a certain thing. Personally, not usually. But could it be used in that way? Could it be used in a way where you're you're not sure how... I don't even know what the example would be. You're not sure how you feel about a certain person, let's say. And one way would be like drawing them and see uh, what they look like. And I think we lost her. Grace is gone. Grace is back. Mike? Yep. Sorry, I lost you. Yep, lost for a second. Okay, um rewind rewind where we were. Where were where were we? Saying um have you, you used art to I... explore your thoughts or feelings? You said no, I don't usually do that. Sorry. And then I say Is it is it something that or is drawing something that can be done to figure out the way that you feel about someone or some particular idea like uh just just to explore what your emotions are if you're not clear about them like say you just met somebody or you know somebody and you don't know exactly how you're feeling can drawing them give you those answers or can you like or if if you don't know what how about how about like abstract topics? If someone tells you to draw love, like how would you go about doing that? Or what is how do you draw um beauty? Um it, can art be a powerful tool to figure out those those questions? Yeah, I think so. And I think everyone would kind of like draw those abstract ideas in a different way. Um, which I think would kind of give them a way to look inside themselves and sort of analyze why they drew what they drew. I mean, this is a very simple example, but someone, if you ask them to draw love, might draw a happy family that they grew up in, and someone else might draw, I don't know, a big question mark or something, like, or someone might draw something totally different or... I don't know, or they might use different colors to explain that. And I think you could sort of look back and analyze what that means. Uh So, yeah, and I think a a lot of probably things that are in our subconscious come out when you're drawing or same thing, like if you're journaling or, I don't know, even meditating, like you can kind of get down to these thoughts or feelings that you don't normally have access to 
in your normal day-to-day when you're distracted by everything else going on. Trying, I'm trying to decide if is that a tool that I want to add to my my toolkit? If being creative, is it is it limited to drawing to painting, or am I being creative in other ways that are also exploring these same ideas? And then going back to our toward definition of art it's the purposeful creation of something to elicit a emotion a response or idea for someone else or for yourself yeah i mean i think you could be creative by working in your garden or <laughs> i don't you- know doing stuff in your woodworking shop I think all of that is creative and artistic. Interesting. But I feel like I feel like you can't ex- you can't be as expressive in the garden as you can with a pen in your hand. You can't like <laughs> or I guess not easily. It, it's the great the great gardeners of all time. <laughs> oh wow, okay. Yeah, so this is like um, the ideas of human nature in the English garden versus the French garden um, back during the Enlightenment. This is yeah. Oh wow, <laughs> that 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 makes sense because like if you if you think about the French garden, they're all perfectly manicured. They're all like yeah, they're orderly, precise. They're all exactly um, fine tuned to uh, the optimum idea of what it means to be a specific plant in some large garden in this, this structural organization that's like the french ideal for society for living but then like yeah. the english garden um was more free the plants were kind of growing in their own way they were being more wild yeah. and it was this uh it, it was this combination of human interaction but also plant freedom um and, and you saw this in like the different palaces that existed like the palace of versailles was perfectly perfectly shaped and everything yeah and And i think that's a real reflection of the the time and that culture it it is yeah and i'm guessing you can probably see that with like architecture with um yeah with furniture like the different uh yeah woodworking styles that are done then yeah Hmm. yeah okay well i think (laughs) like art architecture and design like totally reflect the ideals of, you know, society they're made in. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, well, a lot of our friends here in Boston, we've had many conversations and debates over the brutalist architecture in the city, mainly the Boston City Hall. I'm sure you can picture that in your head. Mm-hmm. Can you picture that? The big concrete big building, right? concrete mass which so many people now are like, that thing is so ugly. We should tear it down. So many like mayors and politicians in Boston have said, I'm going to tear that thing down and redo it. And, but it's like has, I mean, I do think it's ugly, but it's has this history and it was built in the 
mid-century when we were coming out of two world wars and Boston was struggling and, you know, didn't, didn't have anything really positive going on and they were sort of slipping as a major city and they wanted to show the country and the world that Boston was a, a strong city and we were coming back and, you know, we were a fortress and it was all about efficiency and form and function and no one cared about beauty or making something pretty. They weren't going to spend extra money on making a beautiful building. They were just going to make this strong structure. And that's like what the people wanted at the time. And people loved it at the time. It was really the symbol of the hmm. city at that time. And now you have all these people in Boston putting up a huge, you know, stink about this ugly building. But it's, it's really interesting how architecture and design ebbs and flows with different different things happening in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I listened to a podcast one time that, that said concrete is very inexpensive to create and to put up, but the maintenance of it is impossible. And the destruction costs are even more than it is to install it. So you really um, got yourself in a catch-22 there <laughs> to, to change it. I guess hmm. that thing's going anywhere, probably. <laughs> yeah, not until the next World War or something, or Boston no, just completely changes its image. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, but it's interesting how... Um, like certain buildings, people are drawn to certain buildings and people are repelled from certain buildings or you know, certain spaces might really make you want to go in there and make you feel good and others make you want to leave right away and like you don't want to be in there for too long. So, you know, a piece of art can influence how we're feeling and also the built environment and a room, a space, a building, a garden can do that too. Yeah, recognizing all those different things about the city, architecture, um, the spaces that you're in, the gardens that you're in, um, do you feel like that gives you a unique perspective on just life that not a lot of people have where you can you see things with finer detail than... Uh, the normal person, the the average person? Um, I don't know if it's that I see it in a finer detail always, um, but I think I just have an appreciation for what I'm looking at. And I've sort of trained myself to always be looking at everything and to be observant of, details or you know even things that are totally inconsequential like a little weed growing out of the sidewalk or some chipped paint on a house that I think looks interesting or cool um, I think I just I think I do look at things with a more kind of both critical and appreciative eye um but I think that's something I've sort of had to had to work at and like make a habit of 
of looking. And I think a lot of times we're, we're looking at our phones or we're thinking about other things or we're not really focused on what's around us. And I, I do try to tell myself every day to like, look at what's around and be present and notice those little details that might go unnoticed. And I think that contributes to me being happier and more aware of things more in the moment, less focused on other stuff that's not right there. So I do think in a way, maybe I see things a little differently. Can you elaborate more on how paying attention to those details, focusing on the little things brings you uh, happiness and appreciation for uh, the things that go uh, missed? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's related to mindfulness, which is a hot topic right now. <laughs> I feel like everyone's trying to be more mindful. And I think it kind of comes down to that where like I sort of, when I'm in that state, I'm trying to, you know, not think about all the other things going on, but just to look at what's around me. And I think that's inherently stress relieving to go for a walk and focus on the sounds that I'm hearing. You know, it's not just what I'm seeing, it's the sounds, it's the smells, it's what I taste, what I see, what I hear, people's voices. Um, can be grounding and kind of help push away all the negative chatter that's going on in the world and in our jobs and stressful things that are happening. Do you feel like this habit that you have um, allows you to have a more joyful existence where you're focusing on the small um, unnoticed, beautiful things that exist with all of your different senses that you have? Does does it just feel like existing is better in this type of mindset? I think it is. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect and I'm more joyful than anyone else. And I'm definitely not always in that state. Usually I'm not in that state, but you know, I try at least once a day to sort of get into that mode where I'm just ignoring everything and just focusing on me and what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking at that time. And I think you do notice a lot of little things. And I think even more than the big things, the little things bring me personally the most joy, like the littlest bud on the tree. I mean, springtime, I just see all these things that just make me so happy. And it's like the tiniest little thing, or, you know, it's a leaf on the ground that's probably a million people walked by and didn't even look at it. But I think I take the time to miss that it has an interesting color or a unique shape or that there's a pretty detail on a building that I passed. It, it does bring me joy. In this mindset, are, are you priming yourself to look for the things that are beautiful about an object as opposed to the negative things about an object? Um, 
I think I am like seeing the beauty and things that maybe other people would see as negative or not beautiful. Um, I actually did a project on this when I was abroad in Venice for a photography class where I took these photos of broken buildings or things that were falling apart or, you know, ruins or things that people might pass by and think were ugly or wrong or broken um, and finding a way to see them in a beautiful way. And I think I do see that a lot. Like there's this like broken brick on the side of this building that I walk by like every day on my Luke that I do. And it's like on this old building that's not nice at all. But there's something about like the chips in that brick that I just like love looking at them. I probably sound like a crazy person. I have like a hundred pictures of it on my phone, but it just like the chips on this brick like make such an interesting pattern and I just look at it every time I pass it and probably everyone else looks at it and they're like oh that building looks so gross like they should tear that down or fix that but I think it's interesting to see those layers and the kind of you know I'm not like looking at that as broke brick I'm looking at it as colors and patterns and shapes to get together sort of making a new a new pattern um and I think the project in Venice like it was you know some of the pictures were like all these layers of peeling paint on the building which to a lot of people would say oh scrape that off and repaint it but I just thought that was so fascinating in such an old city to think of like all the layers of that city and all the people who had lived in that building before and the other people who had passed that over hundreds of years, like they can't paint over that. <laughs> it's history and it's, it's cool and it's exciting. So hmm. I think you, it's, it's like a process to, to train yourself to see things not as an ugly thing or beautiful thing, but to kind of find beauty in unexpected places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To go back to, to wrap this all together, um, for the majority of people looking at an object, they'll only take away what the most evident thing about it is. If there, there's yeah. a, a building that's falling apart, it's just, Oh, it's that, the buildings for falling up, falling apart. Therefore, this object is negative. But yeah. peeling back the layers, looking deeper, looking closer to find the patterns, the colors, the parts that are beautiful about it, um, and extracting um, the beauty out of something that has been unnoticed, that it that takes a little bit more attention, takes a trained eye. Um, that that allows you to move through the world and in, enjoy it at a deeper level, a more intimate level. Like you're, you're not looking just at the surface layer. You're looking underneath it and noticing a lot more details about what makes this object or this thing itself. What, a, what is mm -hmm. the being of this, this building? Is it just, it's a building or is it, um, is it all these specific bricks that are put together and one of them is falling off and has a specific pattern that 
creates this dis- different coloration based on the different material that's in it because it's been oxidized and now that's falling apart, which creates, uh, I don't know, like a different reaction with the, with the cement that, that's been wet <laughs> for a couple of days. Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's recognizing things on a, on a deeper level. And um, I, I think that that's like truly inspiring and awesome. Um, and I, I, I think everyone that comes on this podcast, but, but I sincerely mean it when I say thank you for coming on and like sharing your thoughts and um, how, how you move through life in this very unique and specific way. And I, I think adding your perspective um, on this forum is very valuable to me and hopefully anyone that's watching or, or listening uh, to this podcast. So I want to thank you again, Grace, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I think this was an eye-opening experience and gives me a lot to think about too. And I appreciate your challenging questions and uh, I hope we have another time to, to talk again. Yeah. I, I think we're going to have a lot of, a lot of repeat uh, podcast guests. Um, there's a lot more ground to cover. <laughs> oh yeah. There, there's so much, there's so many more details and layers to uncover here. So but... many details. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a good um, recurring, I think, title for this one. Uh, Grace Galloway, so details. many details. Yep. <laughs> okay, so, um, but before we we start going off into another direction, I'm going to end this podcast right now. All right, Grace has left the building and is just me left to give the closing remarks. Uh, so I got three thoughts that I'm going to go into. Uh, the first one, the real subject. Uh, So we talked a lot about how art is subjective and how every person has the opportunity for a unique view. I think a fascinating thing about art is that it acts like a spotlight in this regard. It really brings perception to the forefront and it shines a light on how individuals can see the same objective thing but have different subjective experiences. How are you interpreting this piece and why is your interpretation different than mine? An obvious answer would be to say that, oh, we just have different experiences. But why not go further and ask, what specific experiences led me to think, feel, or react in this specific way, and what specific experiences led you to react differently? Abstract or open-ended art really provides the opportunity to discuss these different perspectives. We even went deeper and briefly talked about how something as simple as the color blue could be experienced much differently between people. A photon of wavelength 475 has the colloquial name of blue. Um, Everyone agrees that the ocean is blue. They're seeing that same wavelength. Uh, But we have no way yet to verify that my first-person experience of blue is the same as someone else's first-person experience. The experience that you have when you look at blue may be the same experience that I have when I look at green. But it's impossible to describe that qualia. And to push this thought even further into the difficulty of qualia, How would you know for a fact that I'm experiencing the world through a first-person perspective like you are? I may say I do, but is there any way to prove it? What if I was really good at lying? It's a mind-bending thought, and it leads straight to the nature of consciousness. But that's for another day. Uh, Second thought, beauty reframed. So one of the the really interesting experiences that Grace shared Uh, was the experience of taking photos of broken buildings in a way that highlighted the beauty that would otherwise go unnoticed. 
that that immediately made me think of uh, my favorite philosopher king, Marcus Aurelius, uh, and something that he said that I think fits very well. Uh, He said, We should remember that even nature's inadvertence has its own charm, its own attractiveness. If you look at them in isolation, there's nothing beautiful about them. And yet by supplementing nature, they enrich it and draw us in. And anyone with a feeling for nature, a deeper sensitivity for it, will find it all gives pleasure. Even what seems inadvertent, one will find the jaws of live animals as beautiful as painted wonder or sculptures. One will look calmly at the distinct beauty of old age in men, women, and the loveliness and at the loveliness of children. And other things like that will call out to him constantly, things unnoticed by others, things seen only by those at home with nature and its works. I think finding beauty in areas that often go unnoticed is a very, very powerful skill to have. It gives more opportunities to find joy throughout life. And doesn't everyone kind of want more opportunities to experience that joy? Something to think about. Okay, um, on to the, the third point. To obey or not to obey. Another point that was brought up about the perception of art is, although it is a subjective, there are ways to predict how it'll be interpreted and how that person will act after interpreting it. I wish we talked more about the predictability part in this podcast because I feel like there's so much more out there that we could have explored. Um, but I'll focus on another. I'll focus on that um, at another time. For now, uh, I want to talk about getting someone to act a certain way through art. Uh, the The question that advertisers, marketers, and politicians ask is, "What strategy can I use to get people to do what I want them to do?" That line of thinking is the reason that Shepard Ferry started the Obey Counter Campaign. The strategic example given by Grace during her time at the advertising firm uh, was that they showed ads during people's favorite TV shows um, because the research showed that people are more likely to listen in this scenario. Uh, so as like as a thought experiment, if all regulations were removed, would advertisers ever stop if they found ways to make ads more effective? What would happen if they found a method that was 100% effective, like suppose Domino's just hired Hypnotoad and everyone always ordered pizza after seeing the ad? What does that say about free will if an ad works 100% of the time? Or what does it say if an ad works 50% of the time? What about if a phone app is able to grab your attention for extended periods of time? Or what if someone's addicted to a substance and they can't resist it? Uh, All of the things mentioned, they exercise a portion of control over human minds and behaviors. And when they exercise their control, the person behaves and makes choices in a very predictable way. Is that person exercising free will? Is it possible to do what an ad says, but do it in a way that somehow exercises free will? And now here's the here's the big question of what is free will? Um, I don't know. I don't have the answer to these questions yet, but that's not going to stop me from looking. And I'm going to continue that journey on the next episode.